And if you hit the beam, then it sounds like, I don't know, probably, I guess it sounds to me like you're like underwater and like hitting like a cave wall or something goes boom, boom, boom. And it's very echoey. Welcome to Underscore. Underscore is a podcast that explores the modern world of music from a musician's point of view. Here, we debate the intersections of art and life, share our best music picks, and invite cutting-edge artists to a round table to see what makes them tick. I'm Thomas Kotcheff, a composer and pianist here in L.A. And I'm Chrysanthi Tan, a violinist, composer, singer-songwriter, also in L.A. Underscore is a show that celebrates innovation, ideas, and discovery. We won't find top 40 here, but Brian Eno and Clint Mansell and Anushka Shankar are all fair game. Today we're going to debate how different concert venues affect the concert-going experience, then leave you with our current musical obsessions in the segment Something Old, Something New, Something Borrowed, and Something Blue. But first, we're going to kick off this episode by talking to a guest who is an expert at ruining pianos. Okay, she doesn't exactly ruin pianos, but composer-pianist Sarah Gibson is no stranger to playing piano using mallets, mutes, drumsticks, and rumor has it, even a vibrator. She's here in the studio to give us an audio tour of her favorite piano toys, give us fresh music recommendations, and tell us why she wrote a piece for just the left hand. Welcome, Sarah. We just heard a clip of your piece, Sure Baby, Manana. Sarah, we are so happy to have you with us today. Not only are you immensely accomplished as a composer and pianist, having collaborated with ensembles like 8th Blackbird, Wild Up, and Bang a Can All-Stars, but you're also just an awesome human being. You're my partner in our new music piano duo, Hockett, and beyond that, you're an accomplished conductor and an incredible pedagogue. Wow, Sarah. <laughs> Put it all in there. You do, you do a lot of stuff. And I'm so intrigued by this spread of tools you have out in front of you. Like you have, what is this, a t- piece of tin foil, oh, a yeah. mallet. You have a, some sort of a sock. Maybe there's rice inside or, or <laughs> Yeah, mouse? actually, Who it knows? would be what, BB what, pellets. BB, great. <laughs> so can you tell us, like, what these are? Why do you have them? Like, what sure. do they do? <laughs> it's really fun to mess around inside the piano. And what by, do you mean inside the piano? So if you're playing the piano traditionally, you're using your fingers on the keys. Mm-hmm. But if you open up a grand piano, it's easier to mess around inside a piano in a grand piano than an upright piano. Mm-hmm. Open up the lid, there's a ton of strings in there. And you can do all sorts of what we would call prepared things to change the sound or the timbre of the instrument that you're doing, that you're playing. Okay, and timbre is like the quality and the, the nuances, color and the, the color. New, yeah, the exactly. Right, so if exactly. just playing the key is the classic piano timbre, right. you can just alter that with all sorts of goodies and tricks. All sorts of tricks, exactly. So, okay. So but, you want me to tell you about well, it? Well, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like when I was a little kid, I would open the piano and then kind of like pluck on the strings like a harp. Sure, sure. So let's just go through, if you don't mind, your whole bag of tricks. So first we'll start with the foil. Okay. So the if you take a piece of aluminum foil, like probably we all have in our kitchen, and you lightly lay a piece of foil on top of the strings inside the piano, 
and then you play the piano keys normally, it provides this nice buzzing sound to the normal piano sound that you would get. So that's a really fun one to get that kind of metallic sound on top of the keys. Then I also have what we'll call the sock mute. And this was created by one of my composition teachers, Stephen Hartke. And you take a sock, you fill it with BB pellets, as crazy as that sounds. Metal. Metal BB, BB pellets. Heavy. Exactly. It's got to be heavy. You <laughs> sew the sock shut. And then if you place that on the, on the strings, it mutes the strings so that they don't vibrate as much. And it gets kind of a thunk, thunk, thunk sound rather than a ringing normal ba that you might get from pressing the keys. So, and over the years, we've built up a collection by we, I mean, Sarah and I, as pianists and as a duo, we have now four of these socks. So we can cover an entire, entire piano. Okay. Oh, we covered it's it all true. up. And the benefit is that you can put them on very quickly and take them off very quickly. Yes. And a lot of times, piano technicians don't like finger oils on the strings. And this gets the same sound, basically, as if you were to touch the string with your hand. Mm. But it saves your finger oils from getting onto the strings. Awesome. Where do you buy baby pellets? Uh, I got five. them <laughs> Big um, Five, uh, Amazon. Amazon. I recently got them at Amazon. Hunting stores. Feels a little weird to order that online, <laughs> you know, but right. yeah. I, I feel good about it because I go to a Big Five to the hunting section, which I don't belong anywhere near. And I'm like, uh, which one of these are the heaviest of the BBs? And they, and they think I'm going to buy like, you know, some serious hunting stuff. Yeah. This is great. I think our teacher originally <laughs> tells a story about he went to a Walmart and asked where the toddler socks and the BB pellets were. And that oh felt very odd. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what are these mallets? All right. So we have a couple mallets here. One is if you were to take a bouncy ball, like the kind of rubber <gasps> bouncy ball that you'd play with as a child, and you pop it and hot glue it on the end of a drumstick. And this provides a plethora of sounds that you can use on the piano. First of all, one sound that you can do is you can just bounce with the mallet, the ball on top of the strings. And that kind of makes a boing, 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 boing sound. I'm so delighted by that one. <laughs> then on the bass strings in particularly, because the bass strings in a piano have a little bit more. Um, so the bass strings are the lowest notes. Right. And they have ridges on the strings. You can um, lightly pull or actually kind of medium weight, pull the mallet up on the strings like towards you. Okay. And it creates this sea monster sound. It goes like. Wow. So instead of horizontally, it's like vertically. Right. So up and down the strings. Oh, amazing. Another technique is that you can, on the beams that are inside the grand piano, so they kind of hold the frame together, uh -huh. you can um, hit the beams with the rubber ball so it doesn't hurt it because it's rubber. And normally we do this with the pedal down so that everything's really sustaining, all the sounds sustain. And if you hit the beam, then it sounds like, I don't know, probably, I guess it sounds to me like you're like underwater and like hitting like a cave wall or something goes bum, 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 and it's very echoey.
yeah, totally. It, it kind of has um a, a very much like a marimba sound. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's probably a good way to put um, it. And then don't forget um the whale call. Oh, yeah. I, sometimes I say it's a dying cow, too. <laughs> <laughs> if you close the lid on top of the piano keys and you take the mallet with the rubber ball on it and drag it across the lid in the same way that you would on the strings, but now on the lid, it goes and does kind of like a whale call slash dying cow sound. That's a pretty cool yeah, animalistic. It's pretty awesome. It does sound like yeah. a whale call. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is amazing. Thank you. So- oh, are there more? There's, I mean, oh, there's more. Can, I could go, go, go for days. go for days on this thing. <laughs> is that uh, a vibrator? Uh, totally. Definitely a vibrator. Um, so this is a sound that composers have been calling for actually a lot recently in recent years. And you turn on the vibrator and then you lightly can put it on the strings in the piano and it makes kind of like a plectrum like sound that just is sustaining while you hold it there that is such a good idea because it stays on it's true it's true and so you don't have to and you just set it there so or you can hold it and turn it off and it's quiet too yeah so you you know it's a good it's a really great sound yeah wow i bet your amazon cart (laughs) amazon suggestions are just a little bizarre out there (laughs) Mm mm-hmm well, do you want to also do the Ebo? I think that's a cool one. Yeah. The Ebo um, is a tool that a lot of guitarists use. So um, it picks up the vibrations of a string, and it kind of ends up making this sort of computer-like hum. So it'll go bo, like a very simple sine wave. And you can put the Ebo on the piano strings and leave it sitting. And if you put the pedal down again so that the strings resonate, then it will pick up the vibrations of whatever string you put it on. And it'll just go and create a nice kind of hum within the piece. Yeah, so so the Ebo looks like it's about three inches and it's Mm -hmm. just like a little, almost a clip sort of. It's like plastic. Yeah, it's plastic. It's a little heavy. It's heavier than probably you think it would be. It's kind of hard to, it kind of looks like a stapler shape. Totally. It has a small blue blue light on it that... Tells seems you that to it's on. yeah, seems to vibrate the string and yeah, yeah. It's, it's really true. neat, and it, you know, it, it when used correctly, it's a really cool sound and very out of this world. True, definitely. True. Yes. Wow. Well, is that all your instrument, all your tools? Yeah. I mean, you know, we have a, we can use a crotale sometimes, which is like a metal um, disc that you can hit, and it creates a you hit with a wooden mallet, and that creates a nice bell sound. So it's a simple kind of transportable percussion instrument that we use. Um, you can also use any kind of mallet, basically, inside the piano to hit the strings and get different sounds. So a wooden mallet will be a little harsher sounding. Rubber mallet, a little softer sounding, etc. Yeah, also have a ruler, if you put a metal ruler inside the piano and then play the keys. So you lay the ruler on top of the strings and play the keys. It sounds like you are in outer space, like... Like, like aliens are talking or something. Yeah, like a weird harpsichord or something. Yeah, very weird harpsichord. Sarah, can you tell us, like, when did prepared piano, when did people start doing it? Mm, very good question. I think that John Cage was probably one of the first one to really make that a thing. Right. Yeah, I think and John right. Cage is most famous for his Sonata piece. Sonata Interludes. He's, mm-hmm. he's most famous for his piece 433, <laughs> Four I would say, three, which is exactly. four minutes and 33 seconds of mm-hmm. silence. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, you, like in the early 1900s? Would yeah, you yeah. And okay. so he started just kind of going to town, fooling around inside the piano. And then compo- and he would put like 
coins inside screws, the stream, nails, screws, nails, right. all oh, sorts wedges. of stuff. There's actually an iPhone app called John Cage's Piano, and you can like really? play what his. You can yeah. There's oh, screws. I'm have to there's check bolts. That out. You can yeah. Definitely check it out. That's We're putting a link cool. to that in the show notes for sure. Very cool. I have another question about prepared piano because yes. it's so fascinating to me. Um, when you're about to, because I know even though it started a while ago, not that many people do it today mm. unless mm-hmm. you're really in the new music scene. Right. So when you're booking shows, either you as solo or you with your duo with Thomas, mm-hmm. do venues ever deny you or are they ever worried that yes. you're going to yes. ruin the their That's a very good question. Okay. I will say Thomas and I have a rule that we don't do anything that hurts the piano. We okay. don't do anything that would hurt. We don't do anything we wouldn't do on our own pianos. And we both love our own pianos very much. <laughs> and so you don't cause irreparable damage. Exactly. But you're just going to tinker a little bit. Tinker a little bit. And we tend to kind of take the don't ask, don't tell rule. Sometimes like we go in and we... Because we aren't hurting the piano. And if they ask us, we absolutely tell them what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes we definitely get, you know, like, oh, you can't do that. Often a venue will have a piano that they allow you to do this stuff on. Like a separate piano that they're absolutely. like, in case people want to play this prepared. This is our, oh, exactly. Okay. And okay. so that tends to, generally venues do ask about that if they know that we're a new music piano duo, which they will. Mm-hmm. And so we tell them what we're doing. They say, great, we have a piano a side that piano. you can use. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a good compromise. That's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Um Great. Well, so we're going to put together a playlist of suggestions. So we're awesome. going to ask you for prepared piano pieces. Put some pieces. John Cage in Love there. It. Put some John Cage in it. there. Maybe some Hauschka. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about is your left-hand piano concerto. I noticed that you wrote a piano concerto that's just for left hand. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. How exactly. did that come about? Well, <laughs> it's a... It's a History. Uh, it's got a history in my life. So when I was in college, it was my senior year of college, and I was a composition and piano double major, um, and the composition department had a cookout. And so we all went over to one of the professor's houses for, you know, burgers and hot dogs and then to play football. So composers playing football, always a bad idea. And I got out on the field. I'm doing pretty well, feeling pretty proud of myself. Ball gets tossed to me. I'm catching it. I'm going to go for the touchdown. I catch the ball funny. I break a finger. Ooh. And I break my pointer finger on my right hand. <gasps> Makes me cringe. And not yeah, great it, was, it was not a good day. <laughs> it went from being a very fun day to a very bad day. And it was one of those where, like, it just, I knew when I caught the ball that it had happened. I was like, this is really bad. So my sweet friends, I had like six friends that took me to the emergency room because I was so distraught about this. Anyway, we get there. It was this whole process of I had to wear a splint for like nine months and all this stuff. It was like really, really bad. I didn't have to have surgery, which was really, really good. Nine months. Nine months. And it was a thing where like every three months they were like, it'll be better in six weeks. And I'd be like, great. And I'd go in and they'd be like, oh, you need another six weeks. So what I was originally told was going to be six to eight weeks was nine months. Because I used my finger so much more than any other person really unless you're a pianist. goodness. So I ended up having to do my senior piano recital as a whole left-hand piano recital in college. And I wasn't able to play in my composition recital and, like, all this stuff because, of course, I had, all my music I'd written was for two hands. <laughs> really? Yeah. Imagine that. So I, when I came out to L.A. and I was at USC, 
I decided I was, and this was kind of the inspiration behind the piece, of course, that, you know, I had broken a finger and I had to play left-hand music. And there's actually, there was a pianist during World War II who was a stellar pianist, and he lost his right World arm. World War I. World War I, excuse me. He lost his right arm during the war, and he commissioned a ton of composers to write him left-hand stuff. So fortunately, there was a lot of repertoire for me to learn, like Ravel's left-hand piano concerto. And that's a Shulhoff beautiful. That's a, a beautiful concerto. We're definitely going to put a, uh, that on the playlist. Yeah, it's a yeah, great, sure. great yeah. piece. So anyway, after all was said and done, and I had my right hand back to normal and I could play normally, it was funny because I started. I got this idea that I was like, okay, I want to write my own left hand piano concerto, and everybody was like, oh, is it going to be about like your trials and tribulations mm. of getting through this, you know, breaking your finger on your right hand? And I was trying really hard to make it positive, and I was like, actually. I just want to make it about that I've actually played this left-hand repertoire now, and I want to do my own take on it. Like, what did I learn from it, and what can I put in the piece that's about that? So it wasn't like a programmatic piece in that way. You know, it was more about, here's something that I can say about this style of piano playing. And then Sarah premiered it. um, I did. With the USC Symphony. With the USC Symphony. And heard the piano. It was really fun. So let's uh, get an excerpt of that played right now and take a little listen. So I listened to your piece, Outsider, cool. and I love that piece. Thanks. One thing I noticed in it is you use an instrument called the melodica. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us what a melodica is? Absolutely. So the melodica is a small little keyboard instrument. It's all plastic, and it's got a tube that you blow into. And as you blow into the instrument and hold down a key, it makes pitches. It Go makes ahead sound. and play it for us. You. Lovely. So cool. Um, And essentially, it's um, a giant harmonica that's controlled by a keyboard. By a keyboard, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah, like a, a monster harmonica. Monster <laughs> harmonica. It's sort of accordion plus harmonica. Yeah, yeah those exactly. two had a little child and out exactly. popped a melodica. But exactly. It, but it kind of <laughs> looks like a keytar at the same yeah, time. Yeah, totally. There, there, there's a Venn diagram for all these things. <laughs> and these are, you can get really inexpensive ones. So if anyone yeah. is curious um, or wants a little small keyboard instrument. Yeah, like 20 Amazon, bucks. baby. Seriously, 20 <laughs> bucks. You should seriously get one. Yeah. Um, now we need a melodica sponsorship for this podcast. Yeah. Um, okay. So in your piece, Outsider, mm-hmm. I was struck by the fact that melodica comes in toward the end, mm-hmm. and it sounds so it like it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. <laughs> and to me, that was like, oh, maybe that's representative of the concept of being an outsider, and it like was really speaking to me. Totally. And I was telling Thomas earlier today that I'm just really passionate about the melodica mm-hmm. because I 
hate when things are out of tune. And as a violinist, mm. I have so much control over my own intonation. Right. But when playing the melodica, it's like you have no control. Because mm-hmm. these are kind of crappy instruments. They're not really tuned the same way. Um, so I thought we should all get out our melodicas. Yes, we all, all three brought of us. melodicas. Oh, yeah. All three of us have ready. melodicas. We got the team. <laughs> and the dream team. Yeah. Let's, let's demonstrate all playing the same note. Got it. Same so note. So how about you start on right. an F, and uh-huh. then you join, jump in, Thomas, and then I'll go. All right, all here right. we go. A one, a two. <laughs> Yeah, Especially the low note is super out of tune. It really but it, is. It's, it's charmingly out of tune. Oh, yeah. And you just got to milk it, I think, you know, because it makes it sound weird. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's, it's part of the endearing quality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're going to move now to everyone's favorite segment, the lightning round questions. Okay. <laughs> so this is where we basically ask you a set of questions that we ask every guest. Mm-hmm. First of all, what genre would you classify your music? Right. I think that I would say modern collaborative classical. Whoa. Collaborative. Okay. Okay. I like that. Catchy. Um, Do you have any performance rituals? You know, I think they kind of vary. When when I was doing a lot of solo piano stuff, I really liked to listen to Yo-Yo Ma playing the Bach Suites before I would play. Um... When Thomas and I are doing duo stuff, often we have a playlist that we listen to in the car on the way there. And then the other standard that kind of comes with all, everything I do, I drink a Coca-Cola before I play. Oh, Coke <laughs> sponsorship, okay. Get a little caffeine <laughs> yeah. and sugar in there right before I go on stage. I feel that one. Yeah. Um, what is a modern or technological tool that's extremely helpful to your practice? iPad. Oh, definitely the iPad. That is good. good. Yeah. It's it's really changed because I don't have page turns anymore. Mm. So I have a Bluetooth foot pedal that turns the pages when I use my foot, obviously, to press the pedal. And um, there's no noise when I turn the pages and no pages fall, and I don't have bad page turners anymore. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What besides your broken finger was a failure that turned out for the best? (laughs) Okay. So a little story. When Thomas and I one time were playing two toy pianos in a concert, and we had played a piece by John Cage before that that I had to have a stopwatch on. And when we went into the next piece that was an improvised piece, I didn't realize that I'd actually hit the timer on my phone rather than the stopwatch. (laughs) And in the middle of the piece, the timer started going off, and it was going... The miraculous thing was that the key that the, the timer was in was in the same key as the piece. Yeah. Oh. So, and we were both playing toy pianos, which are like bell-like instruments. And we had this little bell thing. And we just let it go the whole time because neither of us had hands to stop it. And then the second we stopped, it just like flew over to the phone to turn off the timer. <laughs> so it ended up making it kind of you know, jovial and, and, you know, cool. And now we have an inside joke of, is your phone off? Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good one. So I learned... To always make sure my phone is off. (laughs) (laughs) 
something besides music that you're obsessed with right now? Oh, well, I love my dog. Mm. And I also really like cooking. <laughs> so That's I think great. both of those things, yeah, are good pastimes for me. And a piece of art that changed your life. Mm. I think the one that I, I actually have a um, print of it in my house is the ceiling of the Paris Opera House that was painted by Chagall. Mm. That was really emotional for me to see in person, I think. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Finally, where can people find you online? Oh, yeah. So I'm, I have a website, sarahgibson-music.com, and then Twitter, Sarah Gibson Composer, and then, of course, Hockett, at Hockett Ensemble anywhere you can find us. Great. So we're going to end with a short snippet of the famed melodica piece, <laughs> Outsider by Sarah Gibson. It's time for our weekly debate. This segment is called Counterpoint, and it's where we discuss hot topics relevant to the music world. This week, we're pondering how do various concert venues affect the concert-going experience? This topic was actually voted on by the members of our podcast Facebook group, Underscore Society. More on how to join that later. So, Thomas, what do you think? Well, let's break it down to the extremes. What do you? At, the, at one end, you have... I guess the big concert hall where the orchestra plays. Like for classical music. Yeah, the classical music or the suits are on. Right. And then I guess on the opposite end, what's the opposite? Like Like a garage. Oh, yeah, Yeah. warehouse, garage, Mm -hmm. intimate loft space, chill, drinks, and street clothes on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the piece, let's say the exact same piece is played in those two venues. Mm. What would it be? Beethoven. Sure. Beethoven okay. String Quartet. So yeah, yeah, sure. Pull a, sure. A, a, okay. a, a real a classic. classic. A real classic. classic. <laughs> I think that the, for me the biggest difference would be the amount of rules that come with the hall mm-hmm. and how you act as an audience member. Mm-hmm. In the big room, the big room being the, the, the classic, I'm putting up my fingers to do So air should quotes. we just say con- Walt Disney Concert Hall? Sure. Walt Disney Concert Hall. Yeah. There's, there's more rules. Like someone coughs, there's there's some glares. Yeah. There's like, hey, Somebody no comes coffee. Somebody late. Ooh, Ooh, do they give good. out cough drops there? Oh, they give out lots of oh, cough yep. drops, but oh, yeah. doesn't help anyone. No. <laughs> it's always at a silent part, too. It gets quiet, and, and then, then it's a domino effect. One person coughs, another But I, I feel like that if maybe in the warehouse venue, if you cough, it's like, no, well, no worries. It's a cough. Mm-hmm. But uh-huh. Disney Hall, you cough, it's like, oh. <gasps> Yeah. How could you? Yeah, they paid too much for that ticket for it to have coughing in it. I mean, at that point, I would take the cough drop because I'm like, oh, it's a free refreshment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love the cough drops. I'm exactly. popping out the whole I show. Take, I exactly. always take them. Yeah. Um, what do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely it affects the vibe. I think that it also affects the player's vibe, I think, you know, that, you know, there's a mm. different sort of energy Um, There might be a different way that you prepare yourself or psych yourself up to play at somewhere like Walt Disney Concert Hall where everybody's got on a suit and everybody feels stiffer. You might feel stiffer as a performer. Yeah. And if it's a loft space, it's like, oh, my friends are going to be there. Cool. Like, you know, and there's no a lot of times often there isn't an actual stage in those spaces, too. So you're literally on the floor, same floor as the people that want to see you. So it feels more communicative. Yeah, I a little think. closer to the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there really 
really is a big difference between um, like my favorite, not a big difference, but it's a different thing to think about a concert hall from the listener perspective or from mm-hmm. the performer perspective. Right. So all of us sitting here have experience doing both. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of what my favorite venues are. And actually, my favorite venue is the Masonic Lodge at Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Wow. I don't know if you've Very played specific. or I've never been, been there. there. No. Um, I, to perform with like a band, I like performing at the Troubadour. Um, classic that has a nice audience spread and the stage is really big which Mm. helps me as a performer especially if my band used to be really big Mm -hmm. so um we would really need that space right um and also my favorite place to perform is those house concerts yeah where it's you're just going to someone's house Mm -hmm. um setting up or listening i like both right and you just feel really cozy maybe you're sitting on a couch right maybe you're sitting on you know, a makeshift chair with a pillow. Yeah. And you just feel like really entranced and you feel like you're really part of the same space as the performer, breathing the same air. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, but that connection with the players and that they're right next to you and, and there's no like um, veil that's brought up between mm-hmm. you and the players. That's why Sarah knows that before our show sometimes, I'll just go out and chill in the audience with like the audience and yeah. then like, but they don't know I'm playing the show. So they'll be like, <laughs> They'll talk Who to me. Yeah, and, then, and then like, sh- and then, like, oh, they're on stage. Oh, that's yeah. cool. You know, like, it's, it's surprising that this person was out there. And the I'm audience. backstage drinking. Do they ever ask you like, so have you heard about this performer? I'm not really sure. About <laughs> this piece looks terrible. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> you come. Then I pop out like, hey, hey. it's me. <laughs> what are your least favorite venues? Oh man. Well, I have to say that sometimes. I think as a pianist, it's affected by what's the instrument that I'm playing. Mm, okay. <laughs> because sometimes like these cool kind of like loft spaces end up having pianos that are kind of out of tune and not great. And so that's a different perspective. I think as a composer, where I'm like going to hear people or play other music or my music or whatever, I like these intimate places too. I also like with a small space that you can have 40, 50 people and it feels full. It feels like mm. And it feels exciting and you're like, oh man, you energy. build this place up. Yeah. In those you know, cases, and it's kinetic. In those cases, it's almost good when you hear someone sniffle or yeah. something. You're just reminded that there's life in that room and totally. that you're connecting with actual people and that's what totally. I like about those spaces is because yeah. I think music's about connecting with audiences and yeah. when you're in a place like that, you know that you are connecting. You're you can hear people breathe. Yeah. yeah. What are your least favorite places, Thomas? Least favorite? I'd say to go off that idea, it's where you're separated too far from the audience. Oh yeah. Just period. Like Definitely. I don't know what how big it is, but if there's like me playing and the audience is like a hundred feet away from me, feels terrible. That just feels horrible. I can't feel them. You know. Yeah. yeah. And from the listener perspective, it's also the yeah. same. I would right. say for me at least. Right. Yeah. We'll do you shows. Oh, sorry. Oh, we'll do shows where we bring the audience on stage. Like, yeah, yeah. We'll, like we'll put the chairs like on the stage with us. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Just like yeah. to have them right next to you. Sometimes that's a really good kind of uh, trick to do if you have a huge hall and you just know that you aren't going to get 3,000 people there. You know, then you say, hey, we got stairs or chairs on the stage. Chairs and <laughs> stairs. Stairs on the change. <laughs> I would have to say my least favorite venues are amphitheaters mm. by far. Mm. And, you know, something like Hollywood Bowl or, yeah. or Bowls. Um, you're outside. It's huge. Thousands mm-hmm. and thousands and thousands of people. And I really think those places are more enjoyable if you're not really going for the music. Like if you're going for the hangout. The experience. Then Get the it's, wine going. Like, yeah, yeah, if you're going there to hang yeah. out with friends or mm-hmm. to have a picnic yeah. or something, then it's it's great. It's fun. 
But if I'm really trying to listen to some music in a sensitive way, and uh-huh. I mean this for all genres. I've seen um, classical music there. I've seen, like, Balkan. I've seen, like, A Nightmare Before Christmas screening. Right, I've seen right. Cat Power, Pixies there. Mm-hmm. It's the same for every genre. I I think it's more enjoyable if you're going there for the hang than for the yeah. music. Because the acoustics yeah. aren't as subtle. Right. Oh, definitely Oh, yeah. Not. It's just no, booming no. up on the, ampl- yeah, on the exactly. big old mic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. One more thing I have to say before we wrap this segment up is accessibility is really hugely important to me as mm-hmm. a performer and an audience member. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's spe- – well, I'm autistic, and a lot of autistic people have sensory needs and, like, mm. can be very overly – stimulated sometimes so sometimes if a place is way too loud or there's not an exit nearby Mm -hmm. or um you know it's not warm enough or you know i just am in a place where i feel panicked or sensitive Mm -hmm. then i can't enjoy the concert as much right so like being comfortable whether it's like a disability reason or really you run hot and it's too cold or, a or nice you run chair, cold or, right. you know, for your butt yeah, yeah. like <laughs> if, like if it's too uncomfortable yeah. then it's hard to immerse yourself absolutely and feel mm-hmm. comfy okay well we'll leave it right there thanks for chiming in sarah of course now we got to ask you what do you think do different concert venues impact your concert going experience How so, and what is your favorite venue? Feel free to email us at info at underscore.fm and tweet us or find us on Instagram at underscore.fm. We also have a Facebook group called Underscore Society, where you can connect with other listeners, vote on future topics, and give us music suggestions. It's a closed group, but all you have to do is follow the link in our show notes, request to join, and we'll approve your request ASAP. Or you can just look up Underscore Society on Facebook or type in the URL, facebook.com slash groups slash Underscore Society. Before we wrap up today, it's time to leave you with something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue, where we share our current musical obsessions. We'll be sharing something old. A blast from the past. Something new. Recent things. Something borrowed. A remix, idea we're borrowing, cover. And something blue. This is up to your interpretation. So we're going to start off with something old. And Chrysanthi, you have one for us this week? Today's Something Old is an album called Donuts by a producer and rapper named Jay Dilla. So Jay Dilla, a.k.a. James DeWitt Yancey, it's actually his birthday month and anniversary of his death because unfortunately he died when he was only 31 in 2006. So this album is an instrumental hip-hop album and it is one of my favorite albums of all time you have to listen to the whole thing continuously because the tracks are like 17 seconds a minute 31 seconds and sort of in a in true donut fashion the last piece transitions right back to the first piece so you can listen to it on infinite loop there's a piece on there in particular a song called lightworks and that one blends underground music, a commercial for a cosmetics company, and it samples a piece by classical composer Raymond Scott. This I can't recommend this album more highly. It's one of it's one of my favorites of all time. Check out our social media because we're gonna post a photo of Chrysanthi's shirt. Yeah. She is currently <laughs> rocking uh, a Jay Dilla swag right now. Yeah. Yes, yes, I'm wearing my Jay Dilla shirt because he's one of my favorite artists. All right, and something new. 
something new is LA Philharmonic just released their 2018-2019 anniversary season. It's their 100th anniversary. So the reason this is something interesting to me is because the pieces that they're programming are incredible. It's They have an unprecedented 54 commissions, 58 world premieres, and music by 61 living composers. So anyone who knows classical music knows that, you know, most of the most of the classical composers that orchestras play will be... Mm, Muerto. Oh, well, yes, will be <laughs> deceased and from centuries ago. Actually, another interesting point, another amazing point, really, is that 22 of the composers programmed are women and 27 composers of color. So compare this to something like Chicago Symphony or Philadelphia Orchestra. They unveiled their seasons too, and they don't plan to play a single work composed by women. And between the two orchestras, only seven non-white composers are programmed. So way to go, LA. LA If anyone is around Southern California this year and you want to see an orchestral concert, I can't recommend LA Phil more. And Thomas, you have something borrowed for us. Something borrowed. I'm going to the champions of borrowing to the Bad Plus (laughs) is a jazz trio. A jazz trio is bass, piano, and drums. And the Bad Plus, they are just known through their entire career of doing covers of from everything from jazz standards to rock music to pop music. And I'm specifically calling out today their album from 09 called For All I Care, which is exclusively rock covers and also has classical, modern pieces on there. And for me, I always go back to the track called Semi-Simple Variations, which is a Milton Babbitt, highly dense 12-tone piano work. 12-tone meaning the height of academic music where every pitch is controlled through a system and through a calculation. And the Bad Plus takes this music, transforms it into an awesome jazz trio. You gotta have to hear it. We'll put it on the playlist. Oh, the Bad Plus is so awesome. We're gonna put that piece on the playlist. And also, Thomas, can we please put their Radiohead cover of Karma Police on the playlist? Let's put that and also one other special track. Okay. Yeah, we'll just load it up with Bad Plus. Oh, they're (laughs) so great. Oh, yeah, Right of Spring. Right of Spring. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Definitely check out the Bad Plus. Um, And Thomas, you also have something blue for us. Something blue. And I'm going to tell you a secret about myself on this and that I'm obsessed with animal shows. (laughs) I love, um, you know, Animal Planet. I am obsessed with uh, Planet Earth, the whole series, like watched a thousand times. Um, What came out just this last month in the U.S. was Blue Planet 2, um, and which is the underwater Planet Earth series. And the music is by Hans Zimmer. The show looks epic. I haven't seen it yet. I have listened to the entire album. The music is awesome. It is really awesome. And so um, it's safe to say I can't wait to dive in with Blue Planet (laughs) 2. Yeah, this is a good note to wrap on. (laughs) Good stuff, team. We will list everything in the show notes if you want to check these things out, too. And we have a playlist for you that goes along with this episode. Chrysanthi and I collaborated with our guest Sarah in crafting a nice hour featuring badass prepared piano music and other cross-genre favorites. We've also included all of our old, new, borrowed blue picks and all the songs we referenced today. 
So that does it for today's episode of Underscore, the podcast that dives deep into the modern world of music from the musician's point of view. Thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait to hear from you on social media at Underscore FM. And definitely be sure to join our closed Facebook group, Underscore Society, if you want to dive in even (laughs) deeper. Yes, we want to hear your suggestions and opinions. And song picks. You give great ones. (laughs) Once again, you've been listening to Underscore. I'm Chrysanthi Tan. I'm Thomas Kotcheff. And we look forward to seeing you next week.